is the word of God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that, that will, they will be heard uh, for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, They have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. So today we're talking about prayer. And uh, as I say those words, my assumption is for most of you, if you grew up in church, and maybe you didn't, and if you didn't, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, but if, if uh, you grew up in church, for most of you, the second you hear, oh, we're going to talk about prayer, there's a bit of a wave of anxiety that kind of washes over the room, or maybe a wave of shame, uh, or a wave of guilt, like, yeah, you're right, I probably should pray more. Yeah, you're right. This is not a great part of my life. Prayer's not something that I excel at. So if that's you, if you're in the room and the second you hear, hey, we're talking about prayer today, and you kind of already feel this low-grade level of anxiety, guilt, or shame, uh, what I want to say is this, that today my hope is that this is the most freeing, liberating, non-judgmental talk on prayer that you've ever, ever heard. So that's where we're headed this morning. Can I make an observation as a pastor? It's really interesting to me that no matter what uh, denomination or what church background or what stream theologically you come from, I have never, ever, ever met anybody that said, yeah, I basically just kill it at prayer. I'm, I'm amazing at prayer. I mean, I, I consider it one of the most easy things that I do. Uh, you, you could just consider myself a man or a woman of prayer. That's how I think of myself. I've never heard that. Uh, And that's interesting, isn't it? That even though prayer is such an essential part of what it is really to be human, if you look at across all uh, world religions and then even people that uh, don't even classify religion, there are times and places where prayer is just a natural response. And yet none of us, none of us feel like this is something that we are really great at. Why is that? Why is prayer something that, if anything, we have a really awkward, strained relationship with? Well, I think, I think the reason is, is, is honestly a few things. It's because we have this haunting, haunting sort of questions around prayer that we can't seem to get over. And in addition to these haunting questions, we also have had some painful experiences that we need to process. So let me give you three haunting questions that I think really sum up how most of us feel uh, about prayer. Questions that we carry with us that you don't ever feel like you're allowed to ask. Here's the first one. Does prayer really work? 
does prayer really work? And I think the reason why this is a question, there's a few reasons. One is the rise of science and technology. So think about this. About 500 years ago, if you were a farmer, uh, you were out in the field and you were experiencing some dry, arid seasons without rain. What farmers would do 500 years ago is they would gather together and they would pray for what? They'd pray for rain. And then, you know, sometimes the Lord would respond and send rain and they would celebrate that answer to prayer. But now today, uh, what we do is we go, well, it's, you know, it's, it hasn't really rained, so I'm going to pull out my iPhone and see what the weather's going to be. And, oh, I mean, oh, I don't need to pray because it looks like on Tuesday we, we have a 60% chance of rain, so we should be good by then. So already we've kind of stopped praying. Or if we do pray now, we just know, oh, that's, you know, it's just weather patterns. Weather patterns have resulted in, this wasn't an answer to prayer. It's just the way that the clouds were moving and forming. Uh, This also happens when it comes to sickness. 500 years ago, if you got a sickness uh, or a disease, then chances are, unless you were in a highly populated area, and even then, you had to pray heal this person or heal my child or heal my body or whatever. And today, if you get sick, what do you do? You just go to the doctor or you take some medicine. Or if it's bad enough, you can go to the hospital and have professionals that are going to care for you. Now listen, don't hear me say that if you get sick, you shouldn't go to the doctor. You shouldn't go to the hospital. I'm not saying that. That's not what I believe. But could I also say that maybe you should consider prayer as a first effort and not a like, oh, and yeah, we should probably pray too, All right? But because of the rise of science and technology, we just tend to explain away any sort of answers to prayer and we we contribute it to science and technology advancing and working in our world. So that's one reason why we wonder, does prayer really work? Another reason why this is a question in our minds is because as a culture, we spend more and more time talking to each other, even talking to each other about God and our problems in life than we do talking with God about our problems in our life. And so what happens is we have an ample amount of counselors and therapists and friends and roommates. And listen, I'm not opposed to any of those things. Those are all great things to have. But prayer for us is like, why would I need to explain this to God? Because I've already explained this to my friendship circle and I have a counselor and they're helping me process. So prayer is like, does it even really work? We don't see a need for it. And and then probably the biggest reason why we wonder, does prayer really work, is because no matter who you are, chances are you carry somewhere deep in your chest a disappointment with prayer. Have you ever prayed and been disappointed? I have. Where I felt like I've prayed with faith. I've confessed any known and unknown sin. I've, I've tried to, you know, check my motivations and get it all accurate and right and and then sincerely ask the Lord for something. And we've all had these experiences where, for whatever reason, the person still dies. The cancer doesn't go away. You don't get the job. The relationship still falls apart. And on and on and on, we just wonder, we're kind of left holding this question, this haunting question, does prayer really work? Uh, Another reason, I think, uh, another question that we have with prayer is this one, just quite simply, would God even want to listen to me? See, some of you, when you approach the topic of prayer, you already recognize that it takes some sort of relationship and intimacy with the Lord to be able to step into this space. So for you, you've already discounted yourself out. You've already said like, well, Andrew, I mean, listen, you don't know my story and you don't know my past and you don't know what I've done and you don't know my heart motivations. And I'm just not the person that's ever going to be good at prayer. 
Like, like imagine if you were right now to just pop into the presence of God and ask him for things, how would he respond to you? Would he be excited to see you or would he be like, why, why are you here? What do you want? Your understanding of God and yourself will directly impact how you relate to prayer. For many of us, you feel like, well, man, you just don't know me. Like I watch too much Netflix. I play too many video games. I have lustful thoughts. I struggle with a particular sin that I can't seem to overcome. I'm just not the type of person that God wants to hear from. So that's a real question. Would God even want to listen to somebody like me? And then a third question, a third haunting question that keeps us from prayer is this. Can we really even trust this God? With tornadoes and tsunamis and terrorist attacks and uh, children dying and miscarriages and relationships falling apart and all of these things. And you just think about the, the billions and billions of people in our world. Does God really have the time for this? I mean, how does he hear all these prayers and does he care? And, and with so much going on, I mean, he's literally maintaining the universe. This one little small thing, does he even want to hear about it? So that haunting question of can we even really trust this God. So these are questions that we carry in our chest. And here's what I want to ask. How do we go from people that have all these questions with prayer? How do we go from that to actually becoming people who pray? How do we make that transition? Well, Jesus wants to teach us uh, the most liberating thing on prayer that I've ever heard. It's the most freeing, liberating teaching on prayer that I've ever heard. So let's jump in and look at what he says. Look at Matthew 5, Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, rather, verse 5. And look at what Jesus says. He says, and when you pray, so he's assuming, like, this is going to be something that we try to do. You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now fast forward, look down at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Have you ever met someone? Hey, you're gonna eat? No, I'm fasting and I'm just so godly and holy, right? That's what they're doing. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's what I love about Jesus. He starts out his teaching on prayer with, hey, let me tell you how not to pray. And I love that. I love that he doesn't assume anything here. So he starts out with, here's how you don't pray, right? Don't pray like this. And the first thing he tells us is don't pray to perform. Don't pray to perform. He he says, these hypocrites, they love to pray. That's a good thing. They love to fast. That's a good thing. If you don't know what fasting is, fasting is when you refrain from eating food so that you can feast on Jesus. Fasting is when you recognize that more than you need food, this is our reality. You actually need the presence of God. And so to awaken yourself to that reality, you avoid food so that you can actually spend that time engaging the Lord. That's what fasting is. The Pharisees love to pray and love to fast. Is that a good thing? Yes. But why do they love to pray and why do they love to fast? So that they may be seen by other people. So here's what you have. You have this this thing that they're doing that should be a transaction and a relationship between God as Father and them, where they're actually bringing their real self to him, 
But what's actually happening is that they're doing this posture, but with the motivation and the direction of other people. I actually want to be seen by other people. That's why he calls them hypocrites. Now, when we think of hypocrites, we kind of think of somebody who says one thing but does another. Well, that's not the case with these hypocrites. The word hypocrites comes from the Greek word uh, hypocritus, which basically was a word referencing actors on a stage. They would wear a mask and they would have a script and they would play a role. And so what happened is they would wear a mask to pretend to be someone that they really weren't. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're actually pretending to be people that love to pray and love to fast. They don't actually love to pray and love to fast. What they love is the applause and approval and to be seen by other people. And so Jesus says the shocking thing. He goes, if that's what you want is just the approval of other people, well, then quite simply, that's what you're going to get. Like you can just have what you want. So Jesus says, don't pray to perform. I have a giant spider crawling on my... All right, there you go. I'm sorry if you're like a like anti-bug killer, but I just destroyed a bug on my, on my desk. All right, so here we go. Um, some of you, that is a really weird thing that just happened. Uh, some of you, some of you, you, you hear this, like, don't pray to perform, and you're like, I don't really want to ever stand on a street corner and pray loudly to be seen, you know? Like, if anything, you're like, if you're praying at lunch, you're like, Father, amen, and you eat your food, you know? Because you don't want to be seen. But here's how we do this today. We, uh, we have people in our church, and uh, no judgment, uh, who are prayer orators, when you pray, it's so beautiful and fluent, and, and you actually strategically phrase the prayer together to sound beautiful. If you're doing that, Jesus is saying, don't pray to perform. We have other people that are prayer preachers. Have you ever met a prayer preacher? I've been in an event at another church, and I won't say what church it was, but it wasn't a church-related event. And the guy that was praying before the event kicked off made the longest announcement via prayer I've ever heard. It was like, God, thank you that this church is so great. And I just want people to know that it's a welcoming environment for them. And Father, I just want them to know that we have services at 930 and Sunday school kicks off at noon. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Like you're literally talking to people while also praying. You don't have to do that. Just talk to God and then tell us the announcement afterwards. Prayer preachers, have you met those people? Or maybe prayer correctors. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting? And you have someone pray out, God, I thank you that you're just so loving. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Your mercy is, it's an ocean of mercy that can't ever be, can't ever be mine. The depths of it is incredible. You separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. You receive us as we are. You're a God of mercy and love and grace. Then the next person prays, God, I want to thank you also that you're a holy God. That you're a just God. That you, you, it was our sin that took you to the cross The Bible says that you're a holy God. In fact, holy, 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 not love, love, love. So thank you, God, that you're a holy God. Have you had that? Have you ever been there? Prayer correctors. And on and on and on I could go, but the point is that oftentimes what gets lost in our prayers is that we're actually just to be talking to God, not to other people, not to be seen, not to be heard by other people. So don't pray to perform. It's pretty liberating. Second thing Jesus says, don't pray with too many words. That's interesting. Look at what he says, Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty words, phrases, sorry, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't pray 
with too many words. How many sermons have you ever heard on prayer where the preacher said, don't pray with too many words? Because that's what Jesus is doing right here. Hey, you want to know how to pray? Don't pray so much with a lot of words. Well, that feels like not what we've heard growing up. Jesus says, yeah, don't do that. Now, this is an interesting statement from Jesus. It actually helps to understand the cultural background here. Uh, The Jewish culture and the pagan culture, that word Gentiles is referring to pagans that worshiped other deities. So the Jewish culture and the pagan culture in the time of Jesus was an overburdened culture with prayer. Prayer was something that was a heavy, heavy burden that they carried culturally. And so the pagans, they actually believed that in order to be heard by the gods, you had to really show them that you were serious. So you had to yell and you had to get serious and you had to chant and you had to use all these phrases and all these words and you had to, to kind of heap up phrase upon phrase and sometimes they would even cut themselves like, look how serious we are, please pay attention. And before you could get the attention of the gods, you'd have to show them how, how serious you really were and then they would want to listen. Jesus says, that's not the way it is with you. The, the Jewish culture was overburdened with prayer in this way. Um, they had, this is every day, uh, something called the 18 benedictions that they prayed three times a day. And if you read this list of 18 benedictions, it's fairly long. They had to pray this three times a day. They had the Shema confessions that they had to pray two times a day. They had the table prayers that they would pray before, during, and after each meal. They had doxological prayers at every opportunity and on and on and on. In other words, the Jewish community was just filled with an overburdened prayer culture pray all the time about everything, about this and about this and about this, and you have to do it this way and this way. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. With you, don't pray with too many words. Why? Because your father already knows what you need. In other words, the portrait he's painting of God here is one of not reluctance, but actually a father who is like leaning in to come to the aid of his kids. That's how you should pray. It's not with too many words because he already knows what you need. Keep it simple keep it short, ask him what you need, and he's going to hear you. I love this. This is shocking. This is freeing. Frederick Bruner says this. He says, prayer is not an intelligence briefing for God. It is an intelligent conversation with God. The paradox of prayer is that only when it is relieved of the necessity of much will people experience the freedom for much. When disciples know that they don't have to pray much, they will, surprisingly, desire to pray more. I love this. This is liberating, isn't it? Hey, when you pray, don't pray to perform. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to do it because your father already knows what you need. Just go to him and ask. Don't pray with too many words. You don't have to prove how serious you are. He's already leaning in. So he tells us how not to pray, and then what he does is he transitions, and now he's going to tell us how to pray. So look at this. This is uh, chapter 6, verse 9, probably the most famous of the Sermon on the Mount. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but but deliver us from evil. Some of you are like, where's the rest of it? For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory and the... That was actually not ever added in Scripture. That was added hundreds of years later because the, the church kind of felt like, you know, it kind of ends on a, you know, weird note. So let's fix that, right? But actually it just ends with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Now, here's what I love about this. This is a prayer that you can use as either a grid, meaning you, you, you use the Lord's Prayer and it gives you a springboard to jump into prayer. Like, where do I even start? Our Father in heaven. That's a great place to start. And you can use this and actually just pray through the sermon, this, this uh, prayer, the Lord's Prayer, as a grid. Or you can actually literally just pray this with faith. Both count and both are beautiful. But either way, what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching us how to pray. And what he does is he gives us six different petitions that I just want to very quickly unpack for you. I think these are amazing. Six petitions. So here's the first one. Our Father in heaven. This word father in Aramaic is Abba. It's where we might get our word Papa. It's one of the reasons why uh, I wanted our kids to call me Papa, right? Because if you look at the various Aramaic words for dad or father, uh, Abba is the most affectionate. It's the most intimate. It's something that is like the most near and dear to a child's heart. One of the first words that a child would say in Aramaic to their dad, Abba. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying is when you approach the Father, you're approaching him in that way. Abba, Father. Now, this is amazing. I want you to just realize that the entire gospel is wrapped up in this phrase, our Father who is in heaven. It's so amazing. Like, um, maybe you don't, you're not familiar with what the gospel is. Christians believe that the gospel is the good news announcement of all that Jesus has done and will do for us. It's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in our place, on our our behalf. And what is so fascinating here is this is the only time in the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this phrase, our father is used. Every other time Jesus refers to uh, God as, he'll say, my father, and then he'll say, and your father. Now think about this. That's fascinating that Jesus would even call God your father. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that would have been more than we deserve that he would say, you can actually approach God as your father. Like no other religion, no other culture, even Judaism didn't have a strong understanding as God as father. God was this powerful being that that you couldn't really approach freely. If you were to approach him, you had to do these rituals and these ceremonial cleansing practices and all of these things. And it was a very difficult thing to approach him. He was kind of seen as this blazing, burning son of holiness, which he is. And yet Jesus shows up and he says, actually, you can call him father. You can call him father. How is that possible? Because the story of the Bible is actually that we are not children of God. We have been enemies of God. We've been running from God. We've been disobedient to this God. And yet what he does is Jesus comes and he says, I'm bridging the gap between you and this God. And he lives the life that we couldn't live. He goes to the cross. He absorbs the full weight of our sin, not part of our sin, all of it. He dies in our place, absorbing the shame and the guilt that we deserve to die for. He rises again from the dead and he literally hands us forgiveness. But not like, hey, you're forgiven, but you're still a slave. So suck it up and try to do better. It's you're forgiven and you were an enemy. I'm not just making you a friend. I'm making you a son or a daughter. That's amazing. Now what's even more amazing is all the other times Jesus refers to God as father, it's always my father and your father. And yet for the first time, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our father. Do you know what Jesus is doing there? I don't just see you as like adopted into the family, but like I'm your brother. I'm your brother now. Jesus is saying, you're with me now. Like the way that Jesus can pray, 
you can pray like that now because all the things that are true about Jesus with his righteousness and the way that he lived and the death that he died for your sin, all of that's given to you as a gift. When you pray, you can pray our father. And you're not just praying our father as an hour in this room. You're praying our father like as if Jesus was standing next to you. Our father. Our father. It's amazing. Here's what he says. Our father, intimate, affectionate, gut level, heart level emotion here, who is in heaven. Powerful, strong, and able. So it's not just like our father, but he's weak and he's impotent and he can't do much. Our father, who is in heaven. Our father, but he's in heaven, he's powerful. Abba. And I love that he says, this is how you should pray. He's literally saying, when you watch a kid run up to their dad, tugging on the dad's leg, going, like for my, for my kids yesterday, this was yesterday in my house, I was asked no less than 4,000 times, can I have candy, can I have candy, can I have candy, can I have candy? It was Sabbath in our house yesterday, so that's, they just know instinctively I'm probably going to say yes. And so what was happening is, like, can I have candy, can I, can I, can I, you know, and I was like, ah, yes, okay, you can, right? And Jesus is saying it's actually okay to pray that way. It's actually okay to, Father, 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 Father. That's how you should pray because you are now a, a child of God if you're in Jesus. You can pray like that. It's amazing. He goes on, second petition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the prayer that we're praying. God, make your name heavy. Make it weighty. Make it be felt in the world. This is us praying, God, as you really are, we want you to be seen and felt in our world. Hallowed be your name. This is a great prayer because sometimes we live actually for the hallowing, the greatness of our own name. Jesus is actually teaching us how to be really human here in our prayer life. We're, we're praying, Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, All right? And then he goes on in this third petition, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, may your reign and your rule in heaven be fully felt on earth. What's true up there, make it true down here. And I love this. This is amazing. Like, so what he's giving you permission to praise every time you see a tornado or a tsunami, or a terrorist attack, or something devastating, or a child that dies, or a friend that struggles with cancer, what you're praying is all the gut-level things that you feel, this isn't right, this isn't good. He's saying, yeah, just pray all those things to, to God as Father. Pray all those things. God, we actually want what's happening in heaven to happen here. We want your reign in heaven to be the reign here. We want your will to be accomplished, the things that you desire, the things that you want, the things that you're after, uh, freeing our world of sickness, sin, and death. We actually want that to take place. So all those sad things that happen to you, those are invitations to pray. Those are invitations to pray. You don't have to carry the sadness alone. Bring it to your Father. The fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. This is just the simple prayer, like give us what we need today. And this is, again, teaching us how to be human. In America, we tend to pray, like, give us way more than we need for a long, long time. Jesus says, no, no, don't do that. Just, you have needs today, pray those needs. Are they physical? Are they relational, emotional, spiritual needs? Whatever they are, just pray for daily bread. The Father wants to give you what you need. This is us recognizing our dependence on a daily basis with the Lord. Then he moves on to the fifth petition. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, or as we also forgive our debtors. 
And this is an interesting one because the word debts is kind of a difficult word to, to translate in English. Probably a better word in the Greek that's used here is the word failures. Uh, the Jewish community kind of believed that y- your failures uh, mounted up as negative debt that would go against you. And your righteous deeds would be counted as credits that would be for you in your favor. So depending on how you lived, if you were really, really bad, then God probably doesn't want to hear much about you, hear much of you in prayer. If you're really good, you're tipping the scale a little bit. Jesus says, no, I reject that entire idea. Come to the Father and all the ways that you failed, just ask him for forgiveness because he wants to forgive you. That's amazing. Have you sinned in the last like 40 seconds like most everybody else in the room? Just pray, Father, would you forgive me? Father, would you forgive me? He's he's saying, pray this like on a daily basis. We need daily bread. And guess what else we need? Daily forgiveness. And he's so eager and willing to give us the grace that we need. And then he ends it with, and also while we're doing that for other people, right? So as I'm asking for you to treat me this way, I'm also asking that you would help me treat other people that way. And then he ends it with this fascinating phrase. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word picture here that I have in my head is of a child holding a dad's hand, walking through a minefield. Father, don't lead me into temptation, right? Or maybe you picture yourself walking past a temptation house, a house filled with temptation. Father, help me not go in there, right? This pull to sin, this pull to do things that we know we shouldn't. He's just saying, pray about those things. Pray about those things. Now, now, now listen, here, here's what I want you to realize. This Lord's Prayer that he just taught us to pray, it's very, very simple, isn't it? Did you notice how simple it is? If you timed yourself praying the Lord's Prayer slowly, you could do this less than 30 seconds. Really, really simple. But it also covers every element of your life. Do you know why? Because God cares about every element of your life. Not just about your heart, not just about certain things. He cares about all of it. This covers every element. Frederick Bruner, again, he says, the Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between it embraces six brief petitions, everything important in life. This is how you become a person of prayer. Very simple. Approaching God as Father, praying about what's important in your life. All right, so where do we go from here? Let me wrap it up like this. Where do we go from here? Well, let me just give you a few things to help you become a person of prayer. How do you actually grow into this? Let me give you a few things. Here's the first one. Pray what you've got. Part of the takeaway from this, this, this teaching that Jesus is giving us on the Lord's Prayer is just pray what you've got. Like, do you have daily needs? Pray those. Do you have temptations? Pray about that. Do you need God's grace in an area of your life? Just pray for that. Are you angry about something? Pray for that. Are you burdened about something in the world that shouldn't be that way? Pray about that. Like, pray what you've got. I love John Chapman, his quote on prayer that's just been life-changing for me. He says, pray as you can, not as you can't. I love that. Some of you are like, yeah, but I can't pray all night. Well, then don't. That would be terrible. Why would you do that? Pray as you can, not as you can't. Well, I I can't pray for an hour straight and stay focused. Well, then don't pray for an hour straight trying to stay focused. Well, I I can't come up front and pray for people during ministry time. I just can't do... Then don't. Pray as you can, not as you can't, right? Just 
pray what you've got. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, let us lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. See, that's part of the burden with prayer is not trying to present some false self to God of here's all the ways that I'm awesome and I'm just going to deceive the living God about that. No, you just like bring the real you to the real God and say, this is what really is in me. This is a demystifying way of seeing prayer. How can you pray? Can you pray with anxiety in the morning on your way to work? Then pray that way. Are you frustrated about a relationship in your life? Then pray about that. Are you struggling with forgiving a child that you feel like has wronged you or you're nervous about what they're going to do with their future? Pray about that. Are you frustrated or angry? Do you need something? Or is your body hurting or is something going on? Just pray what you've got. Pray what you've got. doesn't matter what it is. And then the second thing I want to give you is starting small really can be a big win. Starting small really can be a big win. Uh, I love this from Richard Foster. He wrote a great book on uh, spiritual practices. And he says, if prayer is not a fixed habit with you, instead of starting with 12 hours of prayer-filled dialogue, single out a few moments and put all your energy into them. I would suggest that in the beginning, it is wise to strive for uneventful prayer experiences. I love that. But it doesn't feel great. That's okay. And here's a pro tip. If life always feels great, then you're on heroin, right? So the, that's not the goal. Besides, if we are unaccustomed to it, just slipping away into the presence of God can be so exotic and fresh that it delights us enormously. Pray what you've got. Starting small is a big win. Here's the third one. Pray with gospel integrity. It's interesting to me that Jesus actually ends his teaching in this section of the Sermon on the Mount with this in verse 14. He says, For if you forgive other, others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What is Jesus saying there? Well, he's not saying, Hey, listen, as long as you forgive others, then I'll forgive you. But the second you don't do that, I'm out of this relationship. What he is saying is this. The one who has experienced true forgiveness from me cannot live a life of unforgiveness. Can't. And so as you are being forgiven by me, you will be people that are forgiving other people. And the second you find a, a kind of a root of unforgiveness in your heart, it should be an alarm bell that goes off that maybe I actually haven't fully experienced the forgiving mercy and grace of Jesus. Because you can't do that and remain a person that refuses and withholds forgiveness. So pray with gospel integrity. The point here is kind of what Jesus has already talked about earlier in the sermon. Listen, uh, the father doesn't want to hear from a disciple that doesn't want to speak to another disciple. So deal with that and then you can come talk to the father. Pray with gospel integrity. Some of you, the reason prayer is so difficult is because you've got broken relationships that you refuse to drift in the middle of the tension you refuse to get it figured out. And so your prayer life will actually be hindered. This is why Peter says to husbands at one point, hey, live with your, lives, your wives in an understanding way. If you don't, your prayers will be hindered. So he's actually saying the way you live, right? The way you interact with other relationships actually matters for prayer. And then the last thing I want you to see is this. Pray where you are. Pray where you are. Stop thinking that you have to escape your life thinking that God is somewhere else out there. Just pray where you are. 
I love this. Like the room that Jesus mentions. You know, he says, don't be like the Pharisees that pray on the street corner, but go into this room. Lock the door. What's really interesting about that word room is it's actually referring to a supply closet that the average Jewish household would have in the first century. And it was, it was uh, used to store feed, small animals, tools, other supplies. It was the least sanctified room in the house, but it had a lock. And so what Jesus is saying is just get away privately, wherever you are, and pray. So what matters is not the place, but the motive and the direction of your prayer life. Uh, if you ever do any reading on prayer, and I'll close with this story, it's hard not to find a story about uh, Susanna Wesley that comes up again and again. Some of you know the story about Susanna Wesley, and you've kind of heard she was really, really busy. She had a lot of kids, and so she had to put an apron over her head to pray in the kitchen. But there's so much more to the story than that. Let me fill you in on some of the details. Susanna Wesley married a pastor and couldn't get along with him well at all. They disagreed on everything from money to politics. They had 19 children, so not too much. Nine of them, nine of them died in infancy. Her her husband often left her to raise the children alone for long periods of time. One of their children was crippled. Another couldn't speak until he was nearly six years old. She herself was desperately sick most of her life. There was often little or no money for food. She was plagued by debt. Her husband was once thrown in the debtor's prison because the debt was so high he couldn't pay it. Twice, listen to this, twice the homes that they lived in were burned to the ground. They lost everything they owned on two separate occasions. And it was assumed that someone in the church did it because they hated her husband's preaching so much. Like, I've preached some really bad sermons, and thank God none of you have burned my house down. Someone slit their cow's udders so that they couldn't have any milk. Someone killed their dog and burned their flax field. But when she was young, Susanna said to the Lord that for every hour she spent in entertainment, she would give to him in prayer and in the word another hour. Taking care of the house, raising kids, etc. made this commitment nearly impossible to fulfill. She had no time for entertainment, as you can imagine. And the life of prayer that she had dreamed for seemed like a fantasy. She worked the garden, milked the cows, schooled the children, listen to this, taught them Latin and Greek, managed the household, on and on and on. So she made a deal with God that she could only spend two hours a day, think about this, two hours a day in prayer and worship, only two hours. Here's how she did that. She told her children that when the apron was over her head, she was not to be bothered because she would be talking to God. So she would kick off her shoes. She would stand in the kitchen with the apron over her head and just pour her heart out to God. Now, here's what's so bizarre. Her apron in the middle of a kitchen surrounded by a ton of kids and chaos became a holy place where she could encounter the presence of God. She's doing what Jesus said. And here's what's really, really crazy. She had no idea that she would raise John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley, if you don't know, is one of the greatest revivalists in all of church history. He preached to almost a million people throughout the course of his life. At one point, he preached to a crowd of over 30,000 people at one time without a microphone. Charles Wesley wrote over 9,000 hymns, many of which which we still sing to this day. And he was asked, who had the greatest spiritual impact on you? And his reply was, my mother. My mother. Here's the point. Just... Pray where you are. Pray what you've got. Pour your heart out. And wherever you are, just pray.
because you're dealing with a father who knows what you need before you even ask.